A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 6th of September. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, review of uh, the decision to close the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navin may have only begun its work in the last couple of weeks, but in June, the HSE said it expected the Minister for Health to commission a review of the decision. It also said that it would proceed with closing the emergency department anyway uh, when that review was complete, adding it would consider any correspondence it received from Stephen Donnelly on the matter. That's if it received any correspondence from the Minister. The Minister for Justice is local Fine Gael TD, Helen McIndee, who is on the line. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. Uh, if the government closes Navin's emergency department, the government will obviously take responsibility for that decision, but because of what's called collective cabinet responsibility, it'll be a joint decision, meaning every individual minister will have to take responsibility for the closure. If the Minister for Health concludes that it is actually safe to close Navin, uh, will you be willing to take that responsibility and proceed with the closure of the unit? Well, Michael, I think what I've always said is I want the best outcome for people and I want the best health outcomes. Um, we obviously have a document which is almost 10 years old, which recommends that this change take place. That's out there. That's not for, you know, that's for anybody to see. Um, but we are 10 years later. And what I've always said is if there were to be changes, if Navin were to change in whatever format, we have to make sure that it actually provides a better service. And this is, you know, all of the discussions we've had, all of the interviews I've had with you, all of the meetings that we've had. The objective here is to make sure that we have the best possible healthcare system and the best possible outcome for everybody. If at the end of this capacity review, and obviously that's ongoing at the moment, there are recommendations as to changes that may or may not be needed, or if the review says the capacity is not in the system to do this, then obviously that all has to be looked at. So it's very hard for me to say, well, I'm going to agree with something before the review has 
been completed before a report is given to the Minister, before the Minister speaks to anybody in Cabinet or any of his colleagues as to what needs to happen next. But, but you're not really will, that out, I, I will always do what is right here in terms of what provides the best health care for people. But, you know, like everybody here, I, I continue to have questions. I continue to have concerns based on the fact that we've been told very clearly there's a medical risk in Navin. But we've also been told very clearly if we make the changes now, you will just transfer that risk to another hospital. We've also been told clearly that there are other challenges potentially that would be there around out virus GPs and other issues. So it's not as simple as, well, yes or no because there are all of these factors that have to be taken into account Okay, but without a simple yes We all agree that, that, well, what I'm saying is I'll do what is right and what is best for the people in this county and surrounding areas and what provides the best health care That is my overall objective It's not anything other than that and that is what it has to be That is what all of us want here And if the Minister for Health concludes that the best thing for everybody is to close the emergency department in Navan um, will you support the closure? Well, the only thing that I will support is if I'm shown very clearly that any changes would provide a better health outcome for people. That is that is what this is all about, Michael, that we have better health outcomes. But at the moment, what is being proposed, how it is being proposed, to me does not do that. And I think to most people looking at this would not do that. So how do we get to a situation where everybody, whether it's, clinicians working in Navan, in Drogheda, in Connolly, whether it's our GPs, whether it's our ambulance services, whether it's people who need these services. We have to know that any changes that we make, that it's backed up by a plan, that that plan is is obviously resourced, that there are, you know, changes that would happen to, to improve the overall system. Uh, and that is where we're at now, I suppose. The capacity review that is currently underway is looking at capacity in our A&Es, it's looking at Drogheda, it's looking at Navin and Connolly, it's looking at what the capacity is for primary care and that includes our GPs, it includes yeah. all of the other yeah. different types of services and once we have well, that it, then it, I think the it's, next it's to make recommendations on the process for closing the emergency department uh, I think that's very clear from uh, the terms of reference that uh, still haven't been published, I, I don't think, um, but uh, have uh, been made public uh, because uh, they were given to some media and to some politicians in what has turned out to be a bizarre handling of the situation by the department and quite possibly, if not probably, by the minister with responsibility in uh, this area. Um, how do you feel uh, about what's happened over the last couple of weeks? Um, have you been embarrassed uh, by the information that you've been given? Uh, and you certainly were given wrong information and uh, you stated falsehoods on this programme on the 5th of August, Minister. Uh, and I, I think uh, you told us exactly what you had been told. Uh, but as I say, you'd been given wrong information uh, either by the department or by the minister or, or by both. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, I don't think I give anyone wrong information and I certainly, Michael, would not give you wrong information and I certainly would not intentionally give anybody wrong information. Um, I've spoken to you twice, I think, in the last few weeks about this um, and the information, obviously, that I was given at the time is that the review had started. The review had started, but I suppose it was preliminary work that had started. The review just doesn't start overnight. There's a lot of work that goes into it before it gets to a certain point. Um you know, there was a lot of questions asked, there were a lot of meetings had, there was a lot of work needed to gather together what it was that needed to go into the review and the terms of reference. 
um, it is underway. So, you know, I, I don't think any of what I spoke to you about was incorrect. And certainly there was nobody giving false information. Um, and my understanding is that the review will be completed um, in the coming weeks, October at the latest. And once the minister has that, then obviously everything I've just outlined what is in the review, the capacity, what's in the system, that will then all have to be looked at, not just by the minister, but you're right, by all of government. Mm. Because something like this is not a decision that's going to be made by one person alone. This would never be made by one person alone. This has to be a decision that's collective, taking most importantly into account all of the medical information that is there from all sources, not just from one hospital, but from obviously everybody who's going to be impacted by this. You understand the point I'm making, though, Minister, because on the 5th of August, you said that the review had uh, started the week previous, uh, and that would have been towards uh, the end of July. Uh, And that preliminary work that you spoke about may have uh, got underway uh, towards the end of July, but it seems like the review uh, didn't begin until the week starting the 22nd of August. And I think when I spoke to you, I had clarified that that was preliminary work that had started and I had I did say it was preliminary work. Um, and I'm not sure the exact date, but it was sometime later on in August. The terms of reference certainly evolved over the summer. And I think it's fair to say that that happens if anything like this is going on. Terms of reference evolve and what was published or what was presented, I, I, to be honest, my understanding is that they've been published and that they're there for anybody to see, but they obviously evolved and this is what has been worked on now at the moment. Um, so we have terms of reference, there was work done before that, the work is now underway uh, and at the very outset you, you referenced a meeting, I have sought clarity from the Minister and from the Department and that was a meeting that happened back in June, I don't know when the HSC published their minutes, probably sometime after a meeting. So the article refers to a meeting that was some months ago. On the 29th of June, and that Paul Reid, the CEO of the HSE, said he expected the Minister to commission this review and that when the review was complete, that they'd proceed to close the emergency department in September. Well, the Minister has been very clear with me that that is not the case, that this is not happening in September, that there has been agreement. And I mean, the, the terms of reference are in conjunction with the HSE so they have agreed to this. And I mean, if you look at the language in it, it, it looks at and it talks about um, a proposed change. Now, we know it's been proposed and has been since 2013, but it specifically talks about capacity in the system. And that is what we have always asked for. What is the capacity in the system? Is it there? Um, so, you know, mm. again, the reassurance that I have been given is that there are no plans to do this in September, that that was a meeting prior to this being agreed uh, and that the minister will receive the, the report from this and the capacity review and then obviously we'll have to engage further and I think what's really important is that once that happens is that we sit down again I think in the same format that we did earlier on this summer where you have public representatives where you have the minister where you have representatives from the different hospital groups the HSC and the services that are going to be impacted or would be impacted and that you look at where we go from here so there's still there's work that needs to be done here so I think anybody saying this is, you know, we're happening and this is happening in September. Again, I have sought clarification and I've been reassured that that is absolutely not the case. So if this review concludes and the HSE decides to proceed, what has Stephen Donnelly said to you about how he's going to react? Um, Is he going to intervene? 
Well, Michael, I've never seen a situation like that arise. Where but it's in the minutes of the meeting that the HSE will proceed after the review has been completed and that if they get any correspondence from the minister, they'll consider it. Uh, but it's clear, I think, that they're going to go ahead and close the emergency department unless the minister invokes his power uh, and invokes Article 8 of uh, the Health Act. Well, the Minister has been very clear to me in any conversation that I've had with him that this cannot go ahead without his permission. So I, 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 in my 10 years almost now as a TD and prior to that even, I have never seen a situation where something as significant and something as important as the changing of an accident and emergency, that that would be done contrary to the wishes of a minister or indeed a government, particularly when you have so many important elements that are being looked at here around capacity, particularly when you have so many people are saying, well, to do this now would actually create a greater risk. I have never seen that happen. I I appreciate you're asking me if that were to happen, but the minister has been very clear. He has not given permission for this to happen. Um, If it were to be ignored, then obviously that's a decision that the minister would have to take as to how he would progress but he has been very clear there has to be further engagement with himself, with ourselves, but most importantly with all of the medical experts here who are involved and who would potentially be impacted by any change. I think anything else is hypothetical, but I have never seen it in all of the years that I've been working in politics. And I think for such an important issue and such a, a massive issue for so, so many people, um, I, I would find it very difficult to see how something like that would, would happen in, in that way. Has the minister said, though, that he will invoke his ministerial powers? I, I'm not sure if he said that publicly, but I know speaking to him, he said very clearly that permission has not been given to progress, as you are suggesting. Um, so what would happen after that? As I've said, it's a decision for the minister, but he's been very clear what his view is on this. Um, and again, I have never seen it the case that the HSE and the minister have not sat down and been able to discuss and to progress plans in the way that is most appropriate. Okay, but Paul Reid, the outgoing CEO, um, said that the HSE would close it unless the minister did invoke his ministerial powers. And I I haven't had that conversation directly with Paul Reid, so it's very difficult for me to comment on a meeting that was happening back in June prior to this capacity review taking place. But all I can say is the conversations I've had with the minister, he's very clear the permission has not been given. And yes, that is a nuclear button that you're referring to. I don't think we'll ever get to that. Um, But I think we need to allow this capacity review to take its course. And I think the most important thing is that we do sit down afterwards, that we sit down with our medical experts and that's public representatives as well, because Mm. whatever you say, this is not about public representatives interfering in what are medical decisions. At the end of the day, if a decision is taken, if it's the wrong decision, if it's not done right, we will have to... But the decision has been taken. We will have to take that decision. The decision has been taken. Uh, This review is to look at the process for making that decision work safely. But this is not what this is. Well, that's what it says at the top of the terms of reference itself, uh, which is what um, the uh, review team are working off, which is the process for closing the emergency department. And if you look at the first page, I'm not sure if it's the second paragraph on the bottom, but if you look at the reference to proposed reconfiguration, and yes, I, I said at the outset this was proposed back in 2013, with the idea that 10 years later, where we have a changing health service, changing population, changing hospitals, that you wouldn't Mm. review and assess government policy, but it specifically said 
any proposed reconfiguration that might happen. Yeah, it talks about the the, the impact of the reconfiguration, or to put that another way, the impact of closing the emergency department in Navan on other services, that they need to be identified uh, so that those uh, impacts can be addressed. Because at the top of the page, it talks about the process in relation to Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, which is the decision to close the emergency department. There's no option for this uh, review team to come back with uh, anything other than ways to close the ED. Well, Michael, what the Minister has asked for and what he is very clear and what is set out clearly, I can see, and I I do appreciate looking at it, and that's why I sought reassurances and that's why all of my colleagues sought reassurances with these terms of reference, that this was not a plan to close Navin A&E, that this was the capacity review that we had spoken about and that the Minister had requested. Mm. And he is very clear, very clear, that this review will need to come back to him before any decision is taken, because quite simply saying... A plan was put in place back in 2013. It was government policy then. Therefore, we must do it now. I don't think any government policy 10 years later would not be subject to some sort of capacity review to see if it's still what is required, if it's it's still still what is necessary. it's, It's difficult to have confidence in what Minister Donnelly says, given that he promised an open, transparent process with communication with all members of the community and since then has placed a gagging order on the HSE twice over. Well, I'm not I'm not sure how that would be the case. We've obviously had members of the HSE at, at different levels talking about this quite publicly. So I'm not, you know, I, I wouldn't see that at all. I think there's been quite a few people out talking about this uh, and very clearly talking at, about uh, this. At two points oh, in time. There wasn't for a while and that was explained to us uh, by Jerry McEntee, the lead clinician in Navin. He he told uh, uh, meetings privately and he, he stated it clearly publicly on this programme that it was because of a, a gagging order that was placed on him and other medics in Navin and the HSE by the Minister. Uh, and Following on from that, there was lots of HSE representatives making public statements and since then they'd gone to ground. Uh, and the assumption is that it was another gagging order. Uh, it's a, a, a theory that's been put forward many times on this programme uh, and indeed it's a, a theory that has been put to the Minister directly who once again hasn't responded because this Minister has not responded to any queries from this programme. Well, again, Michael, all I can say is that we've very clearly had voices speaking about this from the HSE. In, in between the gagging orders, the Minister, in between two gagging orders. Now, Michael, I'm not party to any conversations that are between other people. I can't respond to that because I can't, I'm not aware of it. I don't know about it. So I can't respond to any suggestion that people were gagged. What I can say is that people have come out and spoken about this. What I can say is there's been a lengthy process where you haven't had anybody speaking about this, where there has been, you know, work going on in the background where, you know, Mm. there hasn't been any discussion on it. So, you know, I I can't talk about any conversation that's been had between other people. I'm sorry. And, you know, I wouldn't try to... Okay, no, well, it it, it was stated publicly on this programme, on the Public Airwaves by Gerry McEntee, and uh, perhaps uh, we'll send you on a a transcript of uh, that uh, after the programme today, Minister. Um, We leave there for the moment on the hospital. I assume we'll be hearing... Uh, more in uh, the coming weeks uh, and uh, you've been asked uh, to participate uh, in uh, the protest uh, in Kells uh, on the 16th of this month I think uh, I take it you won't be participating So that's not an invite that I've received yet Michael but obviously we'll look at it if it comes to me so uh, absolutely we'll 
Okay, uh, just while you're with us, because uh, it's, it's a while since we spoke, uh, we've been asked to ask you about transport police and indeed the problems, particularly on the buses in the Navin area with people selling drugs, taking drugs, having sex, being violent, uh, people afraid to get onto buses and uh, indeed uh, staff working on the buses who feel somewhat terrorised by the behaviour of others. Is it something that you would contemplate? Well, look, I, I've spoken to the commissioner about this a number of times, actually, as recently as last night. Um, I, I have sought on a number of different occasions updates looking at the types of incidents, the types of reports where we've had uh, arrests, prosecutions, specifically looking at public transport. Um, a lot of the information that is coming back to me, it, it is specifically relating to the Dart and the Lewis, where you, you have the main problems, but I fully acknowledge and, and I've seen and engaged, obviously, where there have been issues on some of the buses locally. Um, the Commissioner obviously decides where resources are sent within Angarda Siakana, but I do think that what he is looking to do at the moment without developing a dedicated transport police is to identify how we can have more visibility um, and more of a presence, shall we say, on our public transport at times where it's needed and where there are challenges. So that's something that's been worked through at the moment. It's something I'll engage with them on and I've spoken directly to him in particular about my own area. It's not just about Dublin city centre and the larger areas. It is about our rural transport. It's about buses. It's about how can we make it safe for people to travel on. Um, At the moment, I mean, if you look at the overall figures, I think we've had 65 arrests um, and progressed prosecutions in the first six months of this year. So we have to try and balance that with obviously other types of crime and make sure the guardia are where they're needed. But I, I 100% take very seriously what, particularly those who are working on the public transport as well, are seeing and what they are experiencing, but also people who have, have been victims of crime. We need to make sure that our resources are where they're needed and that's something that's absolutely a priority for, for the Minister and it's, it's a priority for me as well. Okay, Minister, thank you indeed uh, for joining Thanks, us on Michael. the programme. That's uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's a Fine Gael TD for Meath East. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, this is, this is it, folks. Thank you, everybody, for coming out so early this morning. In only a couple of hours, I will be in Balmoral to see Her Majesty the Queen. And the torch will finally be passed to a new Conservative leader. The baton will be handed over in what has unexpectedly turned out to be a relay race. They changed the rules halfway through, but never mind that now. And through that lacquered black door, a new Prime Minister will shortly go to meet a fantastic group of public servants. The people who got Brexit done. As I leave office, unemployment down to lows not seen since I was about 10 years old and bouncing around on a space hopper, my friends. And on... On the, subject of, on the subject of bouncing around in future careers, let me say that I am now like one of those booster rockets that has fulfilled its function and I will now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down invisibly in some remote and obscure corner of the Pacific. And like Cincinnatus, I am returning to my plough. And I will be offering this government nothing but the most fervent support. My fellow Conservatives, it's time for politics to be over, folks. It's time for us all to get behind Liz Truss and her team and her programme and deliver for the people of this country. Because that is what the people of this country want, that's what they need, and that's what they deserve. 
A few extracts there from Boris Johnson's farewell speech outside of number 10 around half seven this morning. Let's speak uh, to the Minister for European Affairs, Fianna Fáil TD for me, the East Thomas Byrne, who's on the line. Good morning, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us. You won't miss him, will you? Well, I think what we won't miss is the unpredictability of uh, of his decision-making. First of all, the unpredictability of the protocol, which he proposed right. uh, and put forward, and then the unpredictability of um, not complying with the protocol and the instability that I believe that led to uh, in our relations and particularly uh, with respect to Northern Ireland. So, look, we're looking forward to a new government and we hope there can be a reset of relations. OK, I don't know if you've seen the editorial in the Irish Times today. It is a remarkable opening sentence, which I'd like to read for you. The disastrous tenure of Boris Johnson as British Prime Minister is to be followed by one that threatens to be even worse. What do you make of that? Well, there's no doubt Boris Johnson made a lot of mistakes, um, Brexit being the most fundamental of them. But, I mean, they have really closed themselves off to business markets, to people-to-people links, all of that. I mean, that that's all happened. Look, we, we, we have to remain optimistic uh, on this side that Liz Truss would be her own person. Uh, she's been elected to the job. She's not going to be a carbon copy. Uh, she certainly will have difficulties. All countries uh, have difficulties now with the energy crisis. Uh, she may have difficulties with her own party as well because she's got a lower support than uh, other uh, previous leaders have got from MPs and from members. Uh, but she is Prime Minister and I would hope that she would show a pragmatism that she has shown in the past. So she was against Brexit. She's mm. huge experience in different departments. So whether you like her or not or whether you rate her or not, she has huge experience and that must count for something. Uh, and I hope that it counts for the recognition that even Britain, which has decided to leave the EU, will do better if it at least maintains uh, cordial, friendly and close relations with all of its European neighbours, but particularly uh, with Ireland. Would it it, uh, not give more grounds to be optimistic if Liz Truss wasn't her own person? Because Liz Truss is the person who wrote the legislation uh, for dismantling the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, of course, that legislation hasn't passed yet. Um, It's still in the House of Lords. It went, it, to me, it was some kind of a, a weird negotiating tactic um, because it was very, very clear, I think, to everybody and even to British people, and they speak to them privately, uh, that this was completely illegal, would never actually work uh, and would result in consequences that would affect all of us. Um, so I would hope that she would see that there is definitely a virtue in seeking a reset of relations. And we've seen some indications of that. Uh, we've seen that they want to get closer to America and they believe that they need to be on the right page with regard to Ireland as well. Uh, for that to happen. Uh, we welcome that. We'll do whatever we can. Uh, but they must recognise as well that if they're going to solve the big problems that affect us all, we can only all do that uh, by working together. And that's something like the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, as, as an untied knot. I, I think that's very, very wrong. And she needs to recognise as well that when both governments work together and we, the Irish government mm. really wants to work closely with the British government, that you can lead to transformative change in Northern Ireland, that you can actually lead the parties, but you must, the governments must do it together uh, to, show, to show the way. That has not happened over the last few years. Mm, well, she might go another route and trigger Article 16. She could, um, and they could do all of these things, and they've been threatened all the time. None of them has actually happened in the end. Uh, we've had this so many times for the last couple of years because ultimately um, they look it up, look up the law, get legal advice and find out, no, that's illegal. Or they get economic advice which says, no, that would be mad because mm. you're going to bring uh, bad economic well, consequences. Tr- on the tr- triggering Article, Article 16 wouldn't be illegal, would it? I mean, it's part of no, the well, agreement. Yeah, yeah. but mm. well, I think when Article 16 first got uh, spoken about, it was kind of, it seemed to be thought in London that this was a way of cancelling the protocol. And that's not the case. Um, you could bring in Article 16 for specific parts of it. 
Um, and if that were to happen, that may, may have very little consequences, but it may sort of give the impression that mm-hmm. something's been done. But in reality, what has to happen, and I think they know this, is that the only way they'll resolve this is by working closely with the European Union. And yes, okay. there's been high-stakes negotiations, but I, I don't think that can continue very much longer. They, they have to work closely mm. uh, with the rest of Europe on so many other issues. Well, that's what we're all hoping for, and there's no doubt about that. But, uh, there's a lot of hope here, all right. Oh, all right, but it, 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 is it possible for them to work with the European Union, come to a, a conclusion that would satisfy unionists to the degree that they would take their seats in Stormont? Well, I would hope so. And that's the point I made, like, that if both governments work together, you actually can deliver change. Um, we saw the unionists two, two year, just two years ago as the protocol was about to come into effect. I mean, Arlene Foster was talking about the benefits of it. The benefits have been clear to see, actually. So what we want to do on the European Union side, the Irish side, is make sure that the genuine concerns that have been addressed by business people, by, by unionists, are actually addressed by the EU. And the EU has shown itself willing to do that. And I'm convinced if we do that, come to an agreement everybody can have a win, including the unionists. And that's important in any negotiation. So we're, we're up for that. Um, we, we, what we want is to make sure that's in place. How it works then uh, can, be, can, be, can be looked at, but it can only be looked at uh, when the EU and the British government are sitting down together. I, I think and I hope uh, that the British know that. Okay. Um, I take it uh, we'll know pretty soon uh, who'll make up her, her cabinet uh, and all the more uh, importantly from our point of view, who'll be the next Northern Ireland Secretary? It's, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, look, I mean, the Foreign Secretary has huge influence as well. The Prime Minister, of course, the Cabinet Office, a whole range of them. The Northern Ireland Secretary in the last government didn't really appear to be at the centre of things a lot of the time. So I think there's a real opportunity there for uh, a new Northern Secretary to, to really make an impact. Um, but again, she'll, she'll have to decide who that is. There have been so many names floating around in relation to that that we really don't have any idea as to who that will be. But I would say that a lot of the names that have been floated for that job, particularly in the last few days, seem to be very moderate uh, Conservatives. So um, that gives me hope that that's the type of person that they're looking at. And I hope that that will be the case. Is there any such thing as a moderate Conservative? This is going to be one of uh, the most most right-wing British governments uh, in living memory, isn't it? Well, look, I mean, during a leadership election, and this goes for every single party, uh, you're targeting the members of your own party who are, in, in the case of the Tories, would mm. definitely veer to the right, etc. But if you want to win a general election, again, it's the same in every country, you have to talk to all of the people, particularly the centre ground. Uh, so Liz Truss knows that, I'm sure. The Tories are way behind Labour at the moment yeah. at the polls. So she's going to have to deliver. And, and you don't a, deliver by talking to a small amount of voters. But that's always dangerous, isn't it? When you're way behind the polls, you start acting dramatically to garner support. Uh, Liz Truss could make Margaret Thatcher look like a, a socialist. Well, Margaret Thatcher is a socialist compared to some of the policies that are going on, have been going on in the last few years. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher was the one who brought in mm. the European single market, like mm. well, the other governments of the British then left it. So, so this, the, the politics has completely changed. And yes, Liz Truss seems to be modelling herself on Margaret Thatcher, but the policies are, are a lot different. I, I would hope um, that you would actually see what Thatcher saw, which was the you know, we need to work together. And even like Margaret Thatcher was not a popular figure by any stretch of the imagination on this island. But even then, there was the Anglo-Irish Agreement, there was, there was some progress, there was working with the Irish mm-hmm. government, despite the fact that personal relations between Margaret Thatcher, Gareth Fitzgerald, Margaret Thatcher, Charles Hawley were not mm-hmm. good by any stretch of the imagination. But they still knew they had to work together. Uh, and that's 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 the message that I hope that, that Liz Truss gets in relation to Northern Ireland okay. uh, from that time. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us Thanks. this morning. That's uh, Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne of Fianna Fáil TD in Meath East. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there's about 9,000 uh, pupils who had hoped uh, to get uh, school bus tickets uh, this year who still haven't got one. There was about 130,000 applications, as you know, a record number of applications. Predominantly, it's felt because uh, the seats were made free, and that's meant that some children who had seats last year don't have them this year. It's an unholy mess, to say the least, for anyone who's living through this. And uh, the Minister for Education is reported in uh, the Daily Mail to have refused to, to appear before the Eroctus Education Committee on this. So I think we'll be hearing a, a lot politically uh, about it in uh, the coming days. Uh, but uh, that doesn't do anything to help people who are at the end of their tether. Let's speak to one such person. Helen Tuffy is in Bechtel. A very good morning to you, Helen, and thank you indeed for joining us good on morning. the programme. You have teenage boys who had a seat on the bus last year and don't this year. Yes, I do. I have two teenage boys. One has had a, a seat on the bus for the past three years and one the past two years. So one has gone into third year and one has gone into transition year. Um, uh, so basically this year on the 15th of August, we got an email from the regional manager to say that their seats have been declined this year and they hadn't got them. So obviously that led to great shock. I contacted bus Aaron myself on a few occasions um, waited in line. Obviously, they are inundated with calls, and I understand they only have limited answers to what they can tell us. Mm. But what they said is because we were concessionary, we were actually lucky up to this point to have got a ticket. Right. So the plot actually thickens with this chaotic situation because the school year has started, and the boys were always the second to be picked up. We're 17.2 kilometres from Dunshockton Community College. So we're um, just over eight kilometres from Trim. So mm. Trim would have been our nearest school, but they go to Dunshockland because all everyone in the class went to Dunshockland. It suits me for work. I'm a nurse in a city hospital. So that's why they went there. And they always got a ticket. They're always second on the bus. So now what we've learned is the first child on the bus has said that the bus driver has stopped looking for the boys. They've actually stopped to pick them up the past two days. Oh. And that they've looked for them in the evening and the seats on the bus. Oh. And so I am really at a loss to figure out why they sent us an email to say that there's no tickets if there is actually seats on the bus. Right. Do we know how there, do we know how there's seats? Uh, uh, does somebody have know, a ticket that isn't using the seat? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we contacted Bus Aaron about um, your particular situation and, uh, you know, got a stock response uh, and saying they're working to uh, increase capacity and so on and blah, 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 blah. And here's the very bad news. We got a, a statement uh, from Jed Nash, Labour Party TD, uh, yesterday saying that in a circular issued to public representatives on Monday, Bus Erin is saying that they're now closed for business on the school transport front and if you don't have a concessionary ticket already, then it is unlikely you will get one this year. That's not what you want to hear, obviously, Helen. How on earth do a government expect the wheels of the country to keep turning, if that's the case? And how one company who really, the pandemic showed us that organisations like Bus Aaron can respond quickly in these situations, and they really did. So to hear that is actually really shocking. So how do people like me, who stood on the front line during COVID, I'm a single parent, how do people like this, how are we expected to go to work? when there is absolutely no other situation. I have never done anything like this before and spoken out. But this is such a serious matter. I mean, 
mandatory education for children is, is their right. So how are we expected to get them to school if there's no um, system? And now I hear there is places on a bus. So who is organising this? I've also heard that people have got tickets that have left school. They've actually finished their education. So the process of accountability behind what has actually happened is really chaotic. And I think for them to give a blanket statement um, is, is shocking. I think because you're speaking up and uh, because other people are speaking up uh, that uh, there will be a lot of pressure uh, put on this. I'm not sure if it will affect change, uh, but undoubtedly there will be a lot of pressure on Bussarin and the Minister. Uh, I'm sure uh, the Minister is already hearing from TDs and uh, it seems as though every TD in the country is hearing from people like yourself, Helen, who have been left in this impossible situation. Impossible situation. I mean, um, what are we supposed to do from next week? What are we supposed to do? So all our jobs, are everything, every, there's going to be an absolute domino effect from this. Very stressed, anxious children. I've reached out to neighbours and friends. People have their own lives. They can only help for so long. You cannot live day to day like that. And I know there's people with more children going in more different directions. As for the government's climate ambition, um, that really is, again, something that how are we meant to buy into that if we're expected to all get in our cars individually? I mean, I just think even though they mightn't have a solution right now, somebody surely can do an overhaul, an overview of how this process happened and to look at all the buses and get them to feed in their numbers and see who's actually getting tickets and who's not. It's a quite a simple solution instead of shutting it down blanket style. Helen, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks, though, for speaking to us uh, and no problem. Uh, for taking uh, the call today. No problem. Thank you very much. Thank Bye-bye. you indeed. Helen Tuffy uh, speaking to us there in Bechtive in County Mead. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a BDO consulting report for Nursing Homes Ireland suggests uh, that 45,000 nursing home beds will be required in this country by 2031. That means there's a shortfall of about 13,000 at the moment and there's less beds than would have been the case a year ago and more nursing homes appear to be under such pressure that they're closing, particularly smaller nursing homes with uh, less than 40 beds or so. Let's speak to Sarah Lennon, who's Executive Director of SAGE Advocacy. Good morning to you, Sarah, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. How concerned are you about the current situation? I think look, SAGE Advocacy has been very concerned about the future of long-term care for, for a long time now. I think the reports we're getting about nursing homes is sort of one aspect of that, but it's, it's quite worrying. Nobody wants to think that if they've made difficult decision often to, to go into nursing home care that that might be precarious in some way and I think that's really the message that we're hearing is, is that's, that's the case in many in many situations. Right uh, and what about the idea of the smaller nursing homes close? Uh, I was speaking to Tyg Daly of Nursing Homes Ireland last week uh, and uh, about the model of care that they have the opportunity to provide in smaller more personal settings but he, he was making the argument that even the bigger nursing homes uh, provide that personal care because they might have houses within the nursing home of 20 or 25 residents each. Yeah, so I think there's two things. I think the first thing is around, you're right, around that maybe the larger nursing homes having a bit more resilience than the smaller nursing homes. And I think this is one of the challenges when you have a sort of a, a largely for-profit model um, in terms of, of these types of, of care services. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it's very worrying for a lot of people. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Particularly where those smaller nursing homes might be rural, they might be you know, very closely embedded into a local community. For, for a lot of people, that's really what they're looking for is if they do need nursing home care is to stay close to their neighbours, their family, their village, their community. And, and we do know, HICWA did a report on this during COVID-19, is that actually those types of nursing homes fared the best of all in terms of the outcomes for residents during COVID, where they had those close connections with the community. So if we're losing that aspect, that would be very concerning, I think, to older people. And, and their families. Okay, can you explain to me, sir, uh, if possible, uh, what it's like for an older person in a, a nursing home when the nursing home says it's going to close or it's forced to close, uh, but it's closing anyway, and then the resident has to move to a, a new facility. Uh, what does that do to people? It, it's very, it's very disruptive um, on a minimum, but it can be devastating to people as well. I know that Sage Advocacy has supported residents who are in nursing homes are closed for, for many reasons, and um, because you're right, in some cases they can be closed down um, for regulatory reasons as well as as, as because you know the, the, there's an issue with their funding or, or profits, um, and the re- residents are essentially you know often have arrived in a nursing home. Um, it can be tra- traumatic anyway, even if it's the nicest nursing home in the world. You've left your, your family home, you know, where you've spent a lot of your life. Um, and then to have to do that again, perhaps often very quickly after you've arrived in the nursing home, um, it can be extremely harmful, um, particularly for a lot of residents who, who maybe wouldn't fully understand because maybe of dementia um, or other cognitive issues like that. Right. And, and what's at the root of this? Is, is it a flawed fair deal scheme? I think there's a there's a real crisis looming for us in terms of funding for long-term care, full stop, whether that's home care and um, whether that's nursing home care. And in fact, the, I mean, the big problem is at the moment is that people have a statutory right to nursing home care, but don't have the same right to home care. So what we're doing is in a lot of cases, people are 
um, being funneled into nursing home care, being moved into nursing home care, maybe when they could stay at home if those packages were available. So we've been promised a commission on care, which is, is going to be absolutely crucial. And that commission on care would look at all of these issues, not just for today, because what we're hearing is a, a crisis today as we sit here. But if there's going to be an increasing demand, and we know there is, we're living longer, mm. we're living healthier. Mm. Um we're only going in one direction that people as they live longer are going to need more care and we need to get real about how that's provided and funded. Okay. The contributions um, that the nursing homes receive uh, seem to vary from county to county and so they're saying that uh, they're not receiving a- enough income uh, as, and the, the energy cost increases are putting additional pressure on them. Uh, is that a valid point? I think, yeah, obviously we know there's a cost of living crisis and that, that'll, that'll hit across the board. It'll be hitting for nursing home staff as well, um, who I'm, I'm sure will be, will be looking to have their terms and conditions looked at as well. And I think there needs to be um, that type of flexibility does need to be considered and built in. Um, and, in and indeed for home care workers as well, who we know that there's issues around. But I suppose what SAGE has, has discovered with advocacy work is that often nursing home residents are being asked to pay for um, extra costs themselves out of what really a meagre um, amount of money at the end of the day after after the, the nursing home uh, fees have been paid. So I think it's not a, it's not good enough to sort of um, put the, the costs on perhaps nursing homes. It's certainly not good enough to put the extra costs on the residents. Um, and I think, you know, what, as well as sorting out today's crisis and making sure that, that you know, places are protected for people who, who want them, um, we can't really delay any further. We've been promised with Commission on Care by the end of the year. Um, it needs to be it needs to be rolled out now as, as, as a matter of urgency um, or else we really are looking into a, quite a bleak um, few years down the road. Mm. The lowest weekly rate uh, in uh, the country is in Donegal uh, at 904 compared to 1,200 in Dublin. The rates are quite high locally, uh, relatively speaking, 1,024 in Louth and 1,035 in me to, should there be such disparity? I think you know the, the disparity is, is I suppose it's it's reflective really of what is essentially a market in some respects. Um, and I think you know when we looked at things like Slanter Care, um, and we you know there was cross party support for that, and we were told that's the future of healthcare in Ireland. That was more about community healthcare um, and equality in terms of that as well. So I think the fact that there's all those market forces um, influencing really the cost. Is, is I suppose it's part of the context as well but I think what we really do need to be moving towards is um, that element of choice. For most people um, older people particularly in Dublin uh, or sorry particularly in rural um, parts of the country um, you know they might not have a choice about which nursing home they go to it might be the only one available um, and most nursing home residents couldn't tell you if they're in a private nursing home a public nursing home a HSC run nursing home or a voluntary one mm. um, they just know yeah. that you know, they it's want home. to be at home where they're yeah. living yeah yeah, but uh, you, you said uh, uh, nursing home care for profit. Is, the, is that the problem, that uh, it should be uh, a public system? I think that's where we, we do need to move to eventually. And this is not about demonising um, nursing home providers by any way, size, shape or form. We know there's been private health care and social care services throughout the history of the state um, and indeed voluntary voluntary ones and voluntary providers as well. So I think it's, it's about the fact that unless we... Um, 
actually take hold of, of all, all forms of our, our healthcare uh, services, then there will be times where there's less profitable, for example, nursing homes, and um, same as bus routes, same as any other public service that may be discontinued um, unless there's state intervention. And I think it's very important um, that as well as, I suppose, sorting out today's crisis, we do have that one eye on, well, what do we want it to look like down the road? Um, I think for most of us, we'd like to grow older, close to where we've lived all of our lives, mm. and in our own home if possible, and if it's nursing home care, that that's very strongly rooted in the community we live in. Okay. Sarah, thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to yeah. talk to us. Uh, much appreciated. Sarah Lennon is uh, Executive uh, Director of Sage Advocacy Ireland. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us uh, today. Thanks, Harry, for your call. Uh, Harry was on to us to say that he, he was in our ladies' hospital in Navin the other day, and he says everybody was very helpful. I, I'd say within an hour and a half, I was on my way home after getting bloods done and x-rays. Uh, and that wouldn't be the case if you ended up going to Drogheda. You'd be waiting for hours. There's no comparison. Uh, imagine what the Lourdes would be like if uh, they closed the A&E in Navin. The wait would be even longer there, Harry says. As I say, Harry, thanks uh, for your call to the programme. Uh, we'd uh, uh, another call to us uh, which uh, came uh, sorry, from Siobhan Burke. Uh, Siobhan actually was in touch with us uh, through Facebook and she says her son and 17 pupils on uh, the Anagassan to Dundalk bus have no tickets this morning. Hard-working parents struggling with everything right now, also worrying that our kids are not getting tickets. I cannot be driving into Dundalk every day. Uh, I have to be at my place of work at half eight, it's ridiculous the pressure and worry Bus Aaron is putting on us and our kids uh, and exam students are very anxious and this worry is not helping. We need tickets and we need tickets now. Uh, another call about uh, the school buses, John Patrick Toot, again on Facebook saying, my granddaughter is still waiting on her bus ticket. It's a, a joke the way people... Uh, whose kids live a good distance from their secondary schools are, are being left stranded by this carry-on, having to rely on getting lifts to and from school or having to pay the two-way fare each way when they've been approved weeks ago for the bus. Uh, another unhappy, unha- I was going to say unhappy customer, but not a, a customer uh, despite uh, hoping to be one. Uh, Paddy Duffy in touch with us uh, about uh, the British Prime Minister's and I mean Prime Ministers Uh, he says I'm sorry for Boris having to give up his premiership I I thought he was doing a great job for England and he says as well the only consistency with Liz Truss is her inconsistencies throughout her adult life thanks Paddy as always uh, for your Uh, astute vision Uh, Tom in Navin says that the people of Navin and Meath don't want uh, the A&D to close down if it does then these politicians won't be voted back in and it's as simple as that Uh, we had some talk on the programme about capital punishment following what happened in Tala Uh, Patsy and Carrick says anyone who agrees with capital punishment should remember if the UK had not given it up the Birmingham Six would definitely have hung. It's a valid point and I think one of uh, the problems uh, and we've heard so many things from America where people were found afterwards uh, to have been innocent. Margaret, thank you for your WhatsApp message. She says, Michael, listening to your article on nursing homes and care in general, it's very expensive to stay in a nursing home. Yet when loved ones 
uh, uh, have to pay for their parents etc uh, at home they have to jump through hoops for a carer's allowance that's means tested and it's disgraceful thanks Margaret uh, for that uh, and to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today Michael Reed on LMFM. Pope Francis is hoping to go to Portugal in August of next year for World Youth Day. And the pontiff has been speaking to TVICNN Portugal in an interview that was broadcast yesterday. And he had some very interesting comments to make about clerical child sexual abuse. I want to be very clear on this. The abuse from men and women of the church, the abuse of authority, the abuse of power, and sexual abuse is a monstrosity. And this is what the Pope had to say about the monsters who carry out that monstrosity, the priests. If he is a priest, he is there to lead men to God and not to destroy men in the name of God. Zero tolerance, and we cannot stop on that. And every case of abuse that appears hurts me, hurts me. But we have to face it. That's Pope Francis speaking in that interview with TVICNN Portugal. Let's speak to John Kelly, who's uh, the co-founder of uh, the Survivors of Child Abuse Group, or SOCA. Good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. What did you think of what Pope Francis had to say? Well, I have to be honest, it's very moving. How could one not be moved? I listened to something like that. And, you know, I have to say, you know, it's a long time coming and all the rest of it. Then you have to pause and say, well, hold on, did I not hear something like that before? Uh, I remember when he became pontiff, he said something like that. And we ha- we're talking about here, Michael, 1999 in this country, we know when it was first revealed, the abuse in 1999 about the religious orders and then obviously came out about the priests, etc., etc. Now, that's 23 years. And I just get the impression, I mean, they're fine words, and if, but they have to be followed by some sort of action. And I've said this repeatedly over the years. Now, it's fine to say these things, but has he actually announced in any way that he's going to take some sort of action? Is he saying, oh, because you see, what he's probably saying here is, oh, well, all these guys are probably dead now that did it way back in the day. So, but that's not the point. He needs to be able to say say to the victims, okay, you will, or you should have got justice. And in future, what we will do, we will hand over perpetrators to the priest. Now, if they're monsters, as he says, I didn't hear any substance to go along to say that we will hand them over to the police or to the authorities. Did you hear anything like that? No, no. Eh. And, say that I did. and that's disturbing. That really is disturbing because apart from that, the fine words and, and if... But maybe zero tolerance means that. That was a very strong term that he used. Well, zero tolerance, but I thought I heard that a long time ago, even from this particular Pope, zero tolerance. But we've known since, uh, I'm going back 23 years, but these things keep cropping up and in different parts of the world. Uh and is it now, you see, they make these tempted statements, and you have the question, you say, why are they making these statements? I'll give, I'll give you one example here in Ireland, is people are well aware of what's happened, and people 
for whatever reason, they don't simply trust the priests, and the priests don't have, at the church, don't have the same authority here as they did in 1999 or before. Mm. You can see that. Mm. And you can see the, the, the mass goers dwindling. Now, I, that's not something I ever wanted to see. Well, you know, what, what I wanted to see was the church reform itself. And, but I get the impression it doesn't want to relinquish power or authority. It's certainly not in, in certain regions and in certain countries, certainly not, because they literally control, and you've seen it here, in, in the 40s, the 50s, right up to the 70s, they were the biggest control. But you still, to, to some extent, even in the schools. Mm. But they don't have the same influence. And then they, I have to ask, are they trying to regain that influence mm. uh, to try to do this? So uh, what I need to hear from this Pope is to say, right, okay, anyone who has committed all these crimes, first of all, will be excommunicated. And we have a duty to hand over the documents that we have to the authorities. Now, I didn't hear any of that today. Mm. And for victims... That isn't, isn't very much. No, I, I, I hate to be the one that seems to be knocking down the church because the last thing I want, and I repeat again, is to see people because, like my own mother who, you know, she had a heart attack and didn't go to hospital until she went to Mass on the Sunday in confession. Now, maybe that's one extreme end, but the point, the point is it gave her solace to church. It wouldn't be my view, but it gave my, my mother mm. solace. And I'm sure mm. it gives... As it does many, of course, yeah. And, mm. and it gives a lot of people solace. And mm. that's the last thing. I mean, by, by getting vengeance on others, that's not going to help me or help any of the victims. What mm. we want is the people who did it and the people who are in charge of them and the people in authority to stand up. It's fine words, as I said, Mike, is saying, oh, you know, the zero tolerance, zero tolerance of this. The fact is, there was no zero tolerance when these crimes were committed against children. And once it was committed, then I would have thought that your, your blood would curdle and you'd say, these people, get out of my church. Isn't Jesus say that mm. to the thieves in the market and everything? Get out, get out, get out of my, my church. Oh, it's always been the oddest thing about child sexual abuse in the church. Not only was a blind eye turned, uh, but people proactively acted to cover up what had happened and the perpetrators, the child rapists, were protected and moved on well, before I mean, the authorities could move parish, in. Parish. And indeed, I, as I see it even myself in the same institution, uh, the, the guy, one of the guys was moved to Rome afterwards, but he only came back because the police here decided to be <laughs> some sort of collaboration with the government. Mm. Right, no one was taken. And, you know, and, the, and then we discovered there was an acceptable way for clergy to lie using a thing called mental reservation, uh, but that was permitted. So, um, yeah, I, but they, they don't stand up. They don't stand up to scrutiny, any of those things. And, you see, the governments around the world, I mean, even here, we still hear today, I mean, this government here went along with it. I mean, we set up an inquiry mm. here into what mm. happened in the institutions and everything else. Now, what happened? The, the commission came out and said there was tens of thousands of children physically, sexually, and emotionally abused. Mm. Not one of these people were named. Forget about going to court or charge. Weren't even named. They were given pseudonyms. So the state is complicit in this as well. And once you see, and that gives you an idea how the church still has a fair, some type of control. Certainly mm. when that legislation went through, I, I don't, they, I, I'm not too sure they control the people, mm. but they might have influence over governments. And 
If you go to Latin America, a lot of these abuse, and you must remember, this abuse happened all over the world. But was it not all sorted out? Was justice not served here? I mean, we had one inquiry after another. We'd redress schemes and all sorts of things uh, put in place uh, for survivors. Uh, is this not just historical at this stage in this country? Well, yeah, but you have to say, but the thing is, look, something could have been done. But if you take Australia, for example, they actually put people, it was on television, it was live when people were accused and everything else. We didn't do that here. We gave them pseudonyms. We protected them. And I, I, I can remember to this day, I remember when to see the opposition uh, minister, and I, I said, look, this, this guy's trying to sneak through this minister Woods, He was sneaking through a piece of legislation which says, all documents, utter statements and evidence presented before the commission to inquire shall be granted privilege and immunity and therefore cannot be used in a criminal court, civil court or a compensation tribunal. So despite them giving money or a redress, mm. they tied the victim's hands behind their back. So that was wrong, and that was, if, let me use the church now, devilish. That was completely wrong. So, no, they didn't get justice. What they got was the, the nearest thing to it, maybe was some type of compensation as a recognition. But you must remember, we were getting down as children when they were saying, now, there's a few shillings now, go away and don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. So that sort of thing was used, and then the state used that sort of thing. Now, I believe this, though, mind. I believe the people here in Ireland are much more forward-thinking than the church or the government. And maybe, maybe, uh, and I think it's also happening, if you like, in Poland. Poland was a very, very conservative mm-hmm. Catholic. Mm-hmm. And it still is to some extent. But I speak to many, many Polish people here, because there's obviously thousands of them in Ireland, and they tell me that's changing, that people are starting to wake up and they recognise, because it obviously happened in Poland as well, you know, the cover-up and then the type of abuse, but mainly the cover-up. And so I suspect that, especially in Latin America, things are changing, and this is a way of, you know, it's possible this Pope could really be genuine, and he probably has been genuine all Mm -hmm. along, but... As I pointed out before, the curate of cardinals in Rome that he's, he's subjected to, really, uh, they never wanted to relinquish power and they never wanted anything to change. OK, perhaps if they spell out what zero tolerance yes, means, I, it would help. That, okay, I, I think, mm, Mike, mm, just to finish, yeah, I, yeah. if they said this is what zero tolerance means, we will hand over anybody to the authorities, anybody, and we will hand over documents and everything else that would go a long, long way for reassuring people. John, thanks indeed for joining us as always. John Kelly is uh, the co-founder of SOCA. That's the Survivors of Child Abuse Organisation. Now, uh, some more comments. A lot of people in touch with us uh, about school bus tickets. Uh, here of a, a local protest that's taking place today. Somebody is saying it's easier to get tickets for Garth Brooks than to get bus tickets for kids to go to school. Tony in touch saying the government may have been well-intentioned when they decided to make the buses free to help families financially, but it's glaringly obvious that they didn't think the whole thing through, given the current chaos. Why can we never seem to get anything right in this country? Why do we always seem to make a mess of everything? Thanks, Tony. I hope that's not the case. Uh, We'd uh, tracked it in touch uh, about Harry's comments on Navin Hospital. 
Uh, to counter what he said, Harry was comparing his experience in Navan uh, to how he perceived it would be. And Drogheda Tractor wants to reassure Harry that he would receive equally excellent care in the Lourdes. She had reason to be in the hospital herself a couple of weeks ago and she was in the x-ray department and from the moment she entered the Lourdes until the moment she left, she says she got top-level care and the staff couldn't have done enough to help her. Well, thank you for telling us that, Tracta, and for making uh, the call to us and uh, making your views known on the programme today. Much appreciated. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, 77% of uh, students who've uh, responded to, to a Sinn Féin survey say accommodation issues have impacted their ability to do their coursework. 79% say housing issues are making them stressed. 66% say they've considered dropping out or deferring their studies. And the majority of students, 53%, say they have not secured accommodation as yet. Uh, this survey is being published t- today by Sinn Féin's spokesperson on higher education, Rose Conway Walsh, who's on uh, the phone. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I, take morning. It as, I take it there's no great surprise in that, terrible and all as it is. No, there isn't, because we've known for months now, and indeed I flagged it up to the Minister months ago, that there would be a particular problem this year. Now, if you look at any year in terms of student accommodation, there are problems and there are issues and there are challenges, and indeed we must uh, end that situation where the only response to student accommodation uh, emerges in in August each year, and that's why we need proper planning uh, and and a new model for student accommodation to be provided in. Mm. But I think it's quite harrowing when you see it collectively, Michael, in terms of the desperation and the panic and the stress and the anxiety. Oh, it's terrible. I'm just saying it's no surprise. And therein, I think, lies the biggest problem that we've walked blindly and knowingly into this crisis. Yeah, indeed we have. And there are a number of things that can be done and certainly that we in Sinn Féin believe can be done. Well, for, for a start, we have been asking the Minister for months to bring forward a new student accommodation strategy because we know that uh, the one that's already there is as failed and is based on a privatisation model. So what we need is a capital investment to enable the, the HEIs um, to progress, the, the, particularly the projects and the beds that are at an advanced stage now to provide affordable accommodation. Now, we know that in excess of 3,000 uh, beds are at that stage. Nice. And that's why I met with the Minister last week. Indeed, I've been, been asking him for, for months about this. But to they need that's one of the things that they need to do. Um, but there are other things... And, and just put that into perspective, because that sounds like a, 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 a lot of spaces for students. 3,000 beds, what would that do uh, in terms of providing accommodation to the third-level population? Well, we've consulted with all the, the the institutes across the country. So that would actually just provide beds uh, for the students and that would provide affordable beds. What we wanted to do is to... You see, what's happening, Michael, is that see, it, it takes between about 130,000 to 180,000 um, to, to provide a bed for accommodation. But we have been leaving it purely to the private uh, well, not purely to the private, but in the main to the private sector to do that. Now, they, 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 the colleges themselves can provide that accommodation, but it has to be financially viable. And at the other end, it has to be affordable. 
So to bring the affordability down and to make it financially viable for them so that they can get funding, um, um, that they can get approval, if you like, from the Housing Finance uh, Agency, uh, that's why the government intervention is needed uh, to, in order to be able to do that. Because what we've had is a situation where very high-end accommodation has been built, particularly in parts of Dublin, but that's way above and beyond the affordability for any normal student. Mm. We have had a situation as well, which is particular to um, the, the institutes of technology, uh, where they haven't been able to uh, to borrow up to now. Now, a, a borrowing framework has been set up there in the 2018 Technological University Act that provided for the legal basis for that, for them to borrow uh, independently. Um, so that can be done and that needs to be advanced because if we look at um, you know, DIT, for instance, there is no um, um, college of, um, accommodation provided there is purely dependent on the private sector. So we need the, the, the accommodation to be owned partly by the state, partly by the colleges, and to be made affordable for students and to be guaranteed so that that accommodation can't be repurposed either. Because mm. we found in some areas where they've, they've got planning permission for student accommodation and, and all of that, and then a couple of years down the line, they decide, well, we're going to let it out for tourist accommodation or whatever else. And that, again, takes away from the stock of, uh, of student accommodation that's available. Is it too late uh, for this year's crop of students? Um, well, it's not in that I think people actually see it in the pipeline, but I think also we're at such an emergency stage that we need, and I've asked the Minister to fully examine uh, the immediate use of rapid build construction unit, units um, as well mm. um, to see if that would work. Now, I asked him as well to do the, the national campaign for the rent-a-room, and I know there has been a bit of uptake there where yeah. people can rent out a room in their house and it doesn't affect their social welfare payments and they can they can uh, get up to 14000 uh, tax-free from that. And if somebody has a room available in their house, that they can get a student that's a good match for their family that could come in and live with them. I mean, that's a mm. temporary solution and it's a solution and for it, an emergency. It, it, ha- it has its own problems. Uh, you've quoted uh, many of uh, the 400 uh, plus people who participated in your survey in the report that you're publishing today. Uh, I think the first quotation refers to digs uh, and uh, a woman in Mayo saying, my daughter had to give up her places. The digs were a disgrace. The woman of the house locked the kitchen so she couldn't eat there uh, and commuting from Mayo to Limerick was impossible so she dropped out. Yeah and that's the danger that people are dropping out and as I say digs isn't there needs to be legislation around digs as well to protect uh, students and in the interim I think there needs to be at least guidelines there to be able to have some uh, some control uh, on that sector because I met with the, the Students Union of Ireland yesterday as well and there is um the information that's coming back is while it's working very well for mm. some, there are others is exploitation going on in terms of the cost, in terms of curfews being put in place very early, curfews, mm. uh, not being able to use the kitchen um, and all kinds of conditions that would make it impossible for students to live there. Okay, and of but course, we've always had yeah. the problem of in terms of the standards of accommodation that are available. That's not just confined to student accommodation. Of yeah. course, it's in the wider sector of as well. Of course, and we'd hope that's uh, the minority and that most people are good. And if uh, people are listening to us, and I think a lot of us feel very sorry for uh, this year's students and uh, the task uh, at hand, uh, 
the, the, that you know they should be so concentrated on so many things at this important time in their life but the biggest problem is where we're going to sleep uh, and if uh, people do want to make accommodation available to them as you said uh, you can earn up to 14,000 euro tax free and I'm sure that many people will do that um, uh, to give the students a, a chance and a, a place to live uh, but uh, that really is the best hope at this stage isn't it I mean we're not going to see student accommodation made available overnight or we're not going to see the cost of rent come down overnight if you're looking for somewhere to rent in Dublin the average rents are, are at 2000 it's unaffordable in the first instance it really is in that in the situation and that's why we've been Champagne have been calling for a, for a rent freeze for for so long now but you have students now competing in the wider market and you know uh, Michael where there's never been a housing crisis as such before in counties like Mayo and in the counties beyond Dublin there's a real homelessness crisis at this stage I have never ever seen it so bad as it is now and I suppose what people realise is that it hasn't come about by accident it has come about and has been driven by government policy in you know the HAP scheme, the Ross scheme, the privatisation and the commodifying of housing, and we're left in a situation where so many people, I think it's, it's over ten thousand. You know, on a Brennan's estimate, of about fourteen thousand people who are homeless. Uh, at the moment, and that has to be pulled pulled back. Mm. And uh, we have a number of solutions of how that can be done. But I mean, basically, it needs to start it as building twenty thousand uh, affordable and and social homes. Mm. And of course, if you build those, it will take um, it will take the pressure of the student accommodation market as well. But in the long term, yeah. I see no way for the student accommodation um, certain to be to, certainty to be established, other than to have. Uh, the capital investment there and be seen by seeing accommodation as an integral part to uh, to third level education. Okay, I think it's probably a little bit like uh, the school bus transport problem. We're seeing that now uh, show its face and parents are realising that there's this huge crisis that isn't going to be resolved any time soon. We're going to realise the extent of the problems with third level students trying to find accommodation in the coming weeks. And I gather that... Uh, we're going to see dropouts, we're going to see long commutes, uh, we're going to see people couch surfing, uh, we're going to possibly see people in tents and uh, we're hoping that uh, people will be able to get a place in digs. Yeah, hopefully, you know, and I do want to thank all of the people who have made their homes available. I also want to thank all of the responsible landlords, you know, who are providing a really good service. You know, it's not they're not all exploiting the situation and they are providing uh, affordable accommodation and we need to support and to acknowledge that. But um, you know, the danger is that pathways, that educational pathways will have to be changed because of the, the non-availability of student accommodation and that needs to be fixed um, as, as quickly as quickly as possible um, because as I said we need students there, we need them to have pathways that are suitable to their own learning and to their own aspirations. Indeed we need to tie it all into the workforce planning that's desperately needed here so we need some joined up thinking between you know the education sector, between student accommodation um, the wider housing uh, strategy, uh, these things aren't unsolvable. You know, we have a very small population, even if we look across the whole of the island. Uh, we need to work together to do this, but we need to stop running into cul-de-sacs where suddenly, um, you know, nothing has been done and then there's a whole panic. And I, I am concerned about the, 
the mental health uh, of uh, of students as well mm. and the impact that this is having uh, on them. Mm. And on their education, which uh, yes, is, is what should be at the core of all of this. Uh, we, li- we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, to tell us uh, about uh, your survey, which you're publishing today. That's Rose Conway Walsh in Fane's spokesperson on further and higher education, a TD for Mayo. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Gardaí are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr of Navan Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And we're going to begin in Kildalki and an incident uh, which saw somebody impersonating a member of Ungarda. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, that's right. On Wednesday, the 31st of August last, at quarter to two in the afternoon, a male called to the door of an elderly lady claiming to be a member of Angarda Siakana. Now, the male told the lady that he had money for her, and thankfully the lady in question became suspicious, and she said she was going to call the guardie. So at that point, the male fled the scene. Now, if the lady didn't actually open the door, we have no description of the culprit, so we are appealing this morning to anyone who is in the Kildalki area of County Mead on Wednesday the 31st of August around 1.40 to 1.50pm and recall seeing anything or anyone suspicious to please contact the Guardian Trim. They are very keen to ascertain who this person is. And just a reminder to those who are living alone or feeling vulnerable to please exercise caution with callers to your door and never open the door to anyone you're not sure of. And always call the guardie if you're concerned, because we're happy to check this out. Well, I, I must say I'm very, very impressed uh, with uh, the uh, presence of mind that that woman showed in how she responded to that. She didn't open the door and she just called the guards straight uh, away. We, we, we don't know anything at all about this man. We don't know if he was wearing a, a uniform or anything like that, do we? No, we have no description at all. Um, she spoke to him through the door, so we have no description, and that's why we're appealing to our listeners this morning. Maybe somebody has saw something suspicious or somebody acting suspicious in the area at that time. Okay. We're going to Black Rock now, where you're hoping somebody might have information about a fire that occurred. That's right. On Sunday, the 28th of August, at approximately 4.30 to 5 a.m. on Main Street in Black Rock, County Laos, there was a report of a fire in the public toilets. Now, the Gardaí and the fire brigade attended the scene and two bins were on fire, which caused significant damage to the walls and the roof of the public toilets. So the Gardaí and Black Rock are anxious to find out how the fire started and are conducting further inquiries. Therefore, any information our listeners this morning might have in relation to this would be very much appreciated. Again, it was on Main Street in Black Rock on the 28th of August, that's a Sunday, between 4.30 and 5 a.m. Okay, to Dunsany, where Gardaí are investigating a burglary. Yes, on Sunday the 4th of September, just after 10am, a burglary took place at Dunsany in County Mead. The injured party in this case discovered the lock and chain cut off the front gate and entry was gained to a new fully built house by key which had been left out for tradesmen. So a large number of new electrical items, bathroom items and aluminium scaffolding were stolen. Some of the items taken included an integrated fridge, a carter, window cleaner, a washing machine and dryer, and many more, which were all of significant value. So the Guardian Trim are interested, are investigating this, and if anyone has any information on this burglary, to please contact Trim Garda Station, or indeed the Garda Confidential Line, if they prefer, on one eight hundred treble six treble one. And just to recap, this took place on Sunday, the fourth of September, at ten twenty a.m. in the Waterstown Dunsany area of County Meath. 
Okay, well, as we go into September and the autumn months, uh, the nesting season ends and with that people are permitted to cut hedges once again. And uh, I know you want to speak to landowners this morning about that, Garda. That's right. Uh, Just uh, want to remind road users uh, to be mindful that roadside hedge cutting season has begun and there has been an increase in large machinery operating along roadsides recently, particularly on country roads. And for drivers and all road users to please drive with caution and remain alert at all times. And also roads are now busier with school buses, cars and pedestrians. So we're appealing to all road users to be patient, slow down, especially when approaching a school and always expect the unexpected and leave a little extra time for your journey. And finally, do not park illegally when doing school drop-offs and pickups. Okay, <laughs> that's something I've never seen. Um, but uh, also, uh, I suppose, uh, just to mention as well, if landowners aren't cutting hedges, uh, po- probably a good eye to do it, good time to do it now, uh, and uh, especially if uh, hedges are obscuring views. Absolutely. Um, there uh, a danger to uh, pedestrians also, which have to move further out onto the road when walking and also to road users and drivers. Okay, thank you indeed, Garda. Fiona Kerr of Navangarda Station will be returning to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Before we leave you today, some more of the comments that have been coming to us. Don is in Navan and he says, where are the patients who currently attend the A&D in Navan expected to go if they close it? Every hospital, he says, seems to be struggling to cope and I find it hard to accept that we would be better off not having an emergency department in Navin. Well, I think the vast majority of patients under the plan will be taken to Drogheda for care. Uh, on student accommodation, John and Touch to say, we've never been able to get on top of the student housing problem. Every year it's the same story with huge levels of panic and stress for everyone involved. Uh, There's a lot of truth in that, John, except that this year it's much worse than ever before because of the housing crisis, the refugee crisis uh, and uh, the combination of all of uh, the problems uh, that uh, we've been seeing, uh, like the increase in rents and housing for that matter. Sarah in touch with us, another person in touch with us, it has to be said about the school buses. Uh, The idea of giving the places free to children this year was a great idea in theory but not so great in practice. The scheme has been inundated by people who have never used the service before. Now, people who have used the service for years are being left stranded on the roadside. When the free service was announced, it should have been the case that those who have always used the service, who had a place in the bus uh, in the past, or would have been entitled to one in the past under the past criteria, that they were given first preference. Uh, And then the remaining spots given to new service users uh, instead of uh, the lottery system that was put in place but she says as always a mess was made of it thanks Sarah we're adding you to our list of very cynical listeners (laughs) I don't know there's a few uh, very cynical people in touch with us uh, this morning somebody else in touch with us saying uh, just a a note to people who are cutting hedges clean up after yourself will you the amount of cuttings that are left on the roads are dangerous says our caller that's our programme for today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 
LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.